0: It's August 24th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, Mexican cartels are launching a drone war with groups of trained operators attacking targets in Mexico and the United States. That leads the news this morning. Second, the Russian paramilitary official Yevgeny Prigozhin was apparently killed yesterday. We're going to talk about the plane crash that brought him down and why we should care. Third, a bunch of countries are trying to push America off the global stage. The group is called the BRICS. I'll tell you about who they are and their plan. Later, we close out the podcast with a listener question about last night's debate amongst all those GOP candidates. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. Mexican cartels have built out a sophisticated drone program, ladies and gentlemen, training a new group of operators with targets throughout Mexico and the United States. So here's what we know this morning and how to stop it. Let's start, though, first with some background. About four years ago, Mexican cartels started building up their drone programs using very basic commercially available drones and started weaponizing them with some pretty simple crude explosives. Well, the cartel that took lead on this technology is called the uh, Jalisco New Generation Cartel. It's a pretty grotesque group of people who, well, amongst other things, they require the new members to prove their worth and toughness. By doing things like removing and eating the hearts of opposing cartel members which is lovely well cannibalism aside this group has been working for four years to strengthen their drone program including starting a training program for their drone pilots and these pilots then use these drones to hunt down opposing cartel members or whatever their enemy might be and that includes targets of the mexican government and across the u.s mexico border i want to be clear about something by going across the U.S.-Mexico border, I mean that these cartels are targeting Customs and Border Patrol agents. Although at present, it's not to dive bomb and kill these folks, but to surveil them, for now anyway. Well, according to reports by the Daily Beast and Vice, this drone program that's being operated by the Jalisco New Generation that has graduated about 10 men in all, and they now operate in the Mexican states of Michoacan and Jalisco. And I should note, on Tuesday, the Mexican military confirmed that these operators and their drones are bad and getting worse. The Mexican military noted that there are, well, they went from zero drone attacks in the year 2020. Well, so far this year, 260 drone attacks, pretty sharp increase. Well, in response, the Mexican government is working to do something about this problem, they say, by purchasing some anti-drone technology. They have also asked China to please intervene because most of the drones are actually made and shipped from Beijing. Meanwhile, the communists have said, uh, well, in response, sure, we will do the very best that we can. But as one cartel member told the Daily Beast, quote, we understand that the Mexican and Chinese governments have to do something, but honestly, it's not like we're going to stop. We are fighting a war, even if they don't want to admit it. This is a war and we will source our weapons from wherever we can, end quote. So folks, as Mexican cartels are admitting that they are at war with each other, with U.S. Border Patrol agents, the outlet Axios is reporting this morning that the presidential campaign of Donald Trump has issued his plan to stop all of that, if of course he wins office again. The plan includes finishing the border wall, a naval blockade of Mexico's western uh, coast, which, of course, would block some of those ships bringing in that Chinese equipment and then ultimately labeling the cartels as unlawful enemy combatants. And that would allow the U.S. government to start killing or arresting cartel members as they are identified. By the way, there are other elements of this plan that if you want to check out uh, for paid subscribers, you can go to rightreport.substack.com and explore more of uh, Mr. Trump's plan. Although, to be fair, I should note that Mr. Trump is not alone in promising a pretty notable change in direction on our southern border. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, he has issued his own plan, which uh, includes killing cartel members as well, increasing deportations and finishing that wall. Well, folks, as those candidates are all making their pledges this morning, there's a surprising group of Americans that might be interested in their plans. Voters in the otherwise liberal state of New York. The New York pollster Siena reported yesterday that 82 percent of voters in that Democrat heavy state now say that the recent wave of migrants is a serious problem. And when they were asked who to blame about that, 59 percent said Joe Biden, 51 percent blamed the governor, also a Democrat. And 47% blame the mayor of New York City. Again, to emphasize, all of those uh, folks are Democrats who have long embraced sanctuary po- uh, policies to welcome and attract illegal migrants. So, those are the latest facts and data on America's ongoing immigration crisis and the collapse of our southern border, now complicated by a drone program, all controlled by the cartels. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion on the latest. So folks, on Monday, I told you about a study from the RAND Corporation, which is a U.S.-funded think tank, and it said that America's military supremacy is gone, all because private sector technology like these drones, they have caught up to and in some cases surpassed global militaries like ours. In turn, that gives small nations and criminal syndicates the chance to fight and stand their ground against much bigger adversaries. And because of that, my counsel to you on Monday was to refocus our military on our southern border, to take out the cartels and all those criminal syndicates, and and to do so now while we still have a technological advantage. Well, that counsel I offered up on Monday remains the same, especially with this morning's news. So the reason, ladies and gentlemen, that I think we should remember is the quote that I offered you earlier from the Daily Beast, from that cartel member, because he said it best. They are at war with other cartels, with the Mexican government, and as they determine as appropriate, the U.S. government, folks like our Border Patrol agents. So folks, whether you vote for Trump or DeSantis or Robert Kennedy Jr. or whoever, my counsel remains the same. We are at war with the cartels. We need to acknowledge it, come up with a counterattack strategy, and start killing people and blowing stuff up. And it may be that we have to treat Mexico like the Israelis treat Hamas and Hezbollah, right? There's no finish line to killing the bad guys. You just keep killing and blowing stuff up until, well, in the case of Mexico, somebody takes over that country and sets it straight. Meanwhile, we got to do what we can do that is under our control. Finish the wall, install sensors, cameras, more border agents with greater authority. Plus, we got to eject all those illegal migrants, dramatically expand the deportation of those who have managed to sneak in. And yes, start killing cartel members and blowing up their stuff. That's my plan anyway. And I would guess actually around 82% of New Yorkers this morning might suddenly realize and find that my plan has some merit, despite their otherwise liberal sanctuary leanings. But either way, that is my counsel to you. And with that, we turn to our second report of the morning, shifting to international events. Folks, a plane-carrying Russian paramilitary operators crashed yesterday, and the dead may include a man named Yevgeny Prigozhin. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it should. I gave you an extensive brief on him and his organization called the Wagner Group. That was back on June 26th. And I would definitely encourage you to re-listen to that report as a refresher, but to recap, Prigozhin led Wagner forces all around the world, from Africa to the Middle East, to Ukraine, where they were pretty darn effective. But that made him an enemy to the establishment, the Russian Ministry of Defense, because the regular troops were struggling in Ukraine. Well, that tension led to a long tussle between all those senior leaders that, in the end, resulted in Prigozhin marching a rebellious group of his forces towards Moscow, Moscow. That happened at the end of June. At the time, Prigozhin said it was an attempt to shake up the leadership of the Russian state, specifically the Ministry of Defense. But a lot of other people said "Mm, maybe Putin was a target as well. Nevertheless, from late June until now, I briefed you on how Prigozhin was still alive, but probably not for long. And that's because Putin has said that he can forgive a lot of things, but betrayal is not one. And he said that Prigozhin's rebellion was in fact a betrayal. So that's the recap of what has happened over the past month or so, with, by the way, a link in today's transcript to a piece that I wrote for the media outlet called Daily Caller about the global implications of this rebellion and why we should care. But nevertheless, the issue as of this morning is now of whether or not Prigozhin is actually dead. And here's why there's some debate Yesterday, Prigozhin and a group of his men were in Moscow meeting with Russia's Ministry of Defense to plot a way forward peacefully, apparently. So when the meeting concluded, the Wagner group went to the airport. And waiting there was a body double for Prigozhin, which he uses for his security. And there were two jets where he and his body double, they often switch at the very last minute to throw people off. Well, the two jets took off and the first one crashed or was brought down by either a Russian missile or bomb, depending on the claim. The second jet, when they saw what happened, immediately turned around and headed back to Moscow. So that is what we know for sure. There are a lot of guesses and narratives and conspiracy theories on this about what exactly happened. And I suspect that we are going to hear a lot more of that to come. But the general consensus, as of this morning, is that Prigozhin was on that first plane and he is dead and there are no survivors. Okay, we shall see. But if in fact he is dead, I would like to pivot from facts and data to offer you my analysis and opinion for why this matters and what comes next. First, folks, if Prigozhin is dead, I'm not surprised. If I could use an analogy, he took a shot at the king, Putin, with that mutiny, and he missed. Assassins, ladies and gentlemen, generally do not live long after that. I am also not surprised that Putin, if he did it, He took some time to exact revenge. The Wagner Group had a lot of tentacles all around the world, and it probably took Putin and the regime some time to get a handle on all of that and control it. Second, if Prigozhin is dead, it sends a very clear signal to anybody who wants to succeed him at the Wagner Group or any of the remnants all around the world that, well, if you challenge Putin, you're going to blow up. And that signal is very important for the third reason that I want you to reflect on. Right now in South Africa, there is a group of global leaders who are part of something called BRIC or BRIC nations. We're going to talk about that after the break. But it is mostly full of poor to middle-income nations, a lot of dictators and thugs, but they all share one goal, challenging the supremacy of the United States and Europe for power. And so in that kind of group of nations, if you're Putin, you cannot afford to look weak well, up until yesterday, Prigozhin was running around the world after a mutiny, and that made Putin look weak. So right as these brick nations are gathered, Prigozhin or his plane get blown up? Hmm. Well, that is very helpful timing to any nation or dictator or thug at brick who might have wondered if Putin is uh, losing his edge, to which Putin can now say, Niet, I am still in charge. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, no ads for you. Plus, don't forget those transcripts of the morning's report with all the hyperlinks to the sources for the facts and data I've presented. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, thank you and please enjoy the following messages from our sponsoring partners. Remembering that if you don't hear my voice telling you about a product or a service, then I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Folks, if there were ever a product that you should consider, man, this is it. Jace Medical. They provide an emergency supply of prescriptions and antibiotics. And here's why you should consider them. As listeners know, I have spoken about how China and India control most of our prescription drugs, including antibiotics. Well, what happens if a war should break out over, say, Taiwan or maybe a pandemic again? Well, we all know what happens. Our supplies of critical products get interrupted, and that is not acceptable if your life depends on it. So that is why I am proud to tell you about jasemedical.com, and here's how it works. You fill out a simple form at jasemedical.com, then you speak with a board-certified physician, and within days, your order arrives at your home for emergency use. And I'll tell you, it, this is not for casual use, folks. Talk to your normal doctors for sniffles and such. This is for emergency use with potency lasting for years should the worst ever come. So friends, go to jacemedical.com, enter promo code right. that is W-R-I-G-H-T, and you will get a discounted order. Again, that is promo code right at J-A-S-E-Medical.com. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a continued focus on international news. Folks, we are off to South Africa next this morning to talk about BRICS. I'm talking about BRICS, the acronym, and it stands for Brazil, India, China, and South Africa. So they and a bunch of other countries are in South Africa this week to talk about one very important goal to them, to take on the global dominance of the United States and Europe. Let me give you some background on these guys and this group. And let's start here. They began meeting back in the year 2010. Uh, They set up a financial institution called the New Development Bank to help them fund various development projects. And then they started spreading the word of who they are, what they were about, all taking on the United States and Europe. Well, that was very attractive to a lot of folks. In fact, BRICS now includes 40 nations that have joined or want to join including powerhouses like Saudi Arabia, to smaller but still very important countries like Indonesia and the Congo, which as listeners know from last week, those two countries are vital for things like dirty green minerals nickel and cobalt. Well, that all sounds relatively benign, I suppose. But remember, the goal of this group is to push America and Europe out of the way so that they can take on global dominance. Okay, well, let's first ask, is that ever going to happen? Well, some people say yes, mostly say no, but two things are very clear and very important. First, the number of BRIC countries, that's growing. In fact, we will learn more about that number later today. Second, that growth and the very existence of BRIC, well, it could impact you. And it all comes down to that new development bank that I mentioned. And here's why. So as of this morning, this BRIC organization it has about 40% of the world's population and represents about 25% of the global economy. But what it doesn't have is control of a global currency. So we talked about this all the way back on April 12th, but let's refresh our memories. And to do so, let's do a fun thought experiment. I want you to imagine that you are the president of South Africa, and I am the president of Venezuela. And you and I want to do a deal. I have oil, you want oil. Awesome. But what currency do you pay me in? Because, with all due respect, I don't want your South African rand. That is your currency. And I don't want it because I can only use it in South Africa. I need a currency that I can use globally. Well, since 1944, the world has largely used the US dollar for these kinds of global transactions. In fact, around 90% of the world's foreign exchange transactions are done in U.S. dollars. And the reason for that, the reason for the U.S. dollar supremacy as a, as a go-to transaction currency, well, there are actually three reasons. First, the United States government is perceived as stable. Second, our country is governed by the rule of law, or at least that's perception. And third, our financial industry is pretty well regulated, all things being considered. And those three things, ladies and gentlemen, have made the U.S. dollar the transactional currency of choice. In other words, it facilitates all of global trade. Okay, so how does that benefit you, the American? In other words, why do we care about this financial system? Well, going back to our thought experiment, if I am in Venezuela and you gave me all those U.S. dollars from our oil deal, well, I now have to spend those dollars somewhere, usually on other products and services. And what better place to spend that than in the United States? I can buy stuff with those dollars that made in America. I can buy American assets like buildings or companies, or I can invest in the U.S. stock market or debt markets too. And that is part of why the U.S. economy, in other words, your city, your state, your factories and farms. Well, that is why all of those things have been so economically vibrant for so long. But there's another very big benefit too. So I mentioned that the U.S. dollar is the world's main transaction currency. In other words, between you and me for that oil. Okay. But the U.S. dollar is also the world's reserve currency. Let me explain that in very simple terms with our thought experiment. So once again, I'm sitting in Venezuela and I am doing not just a deal with you, but thousands of oil deals from all around the world. And I've got now all those U.S. dollars, plus other business transactions from other industries, plus, of course, all the taxes I collect. In other words, I've got a whole bunch of money and it has to go somewhere. At first, it goes into my treasury or central bank. We can kind of think about that like a a national vault. Well, most countries then scratch their heads and say, we got to invest that money. We don't want to just leave it in the vault. We need to invest it somewhere, even if just for a few days or weeks to earn some interest. All right, well, hmm, what's the best, least risky investment for that money, right? Well, just like our transactional currencies, we are looking for a country that has an investment with stability, rule of law, and a financial industry that is pretty well regulated. Plus, the investment has to be what's called liquid, and that is just a fancy way of saying that I need to be able to buy and sell whatever investment it is pretty quickly, get my cash back as fast as I want. Well, for decades, countries have turned to the United States for that kind of safe, liquid investment in the form of buying our U.S. debt. Now, maybe you've heard of U.S. Treasury bills or bonds or notes, but for our purposes, it's all the same. Countries around the world want to buy U.S. government debt, right? It's all backed by our rock-solid promise that we will always pay it back. And that is incredibly beneficial to you and me, all of America, And it allows us folks to issue debt at very low interest rates because everybody around the world wants that debt. And with all that cheap debt, we can spend like a bunch of drunken sailors. And we have for decades without ever getting into any real economic trouble for doing so. It's kind of like we've had a a national credit card with 0% interest for over 80 years. And to just emphasize the point, That has meant the U.S. government could spend money on all sorts of things that you and I benefit from. Plus, well, a bunch of dumb things that you and I don't benefit from, like wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which we're gonna come back to in a second. But to pause, let's summarize. The U.S. dollar is used as a transaction currency by traders all around the world, like to buy and sell oil, which is good for America. Also, The U.S. dollar is used as a reserve currency by nations and their central banks who park their money with America when they buy our debt. And that is really good for us, too. A lot of cheap money. But I mentioned the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's important because America's foreign policy has long made countries all around the world pretty mad at us at times because they know that we are financing those trillion-dollar wars with all that cheap debt. Well, that anger and fear of our foreign policy took off like a rocket ship with the war in Ukraine, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is because on February 28th of 2022, the Biden White House shocked the financial world. Joe Biden seized Russia's central bank assets that were held in the United States. It was about half of their total reserves, north of 300 billion dollars. Now, putting aside what you think of Russia or the war in Ukraine. I want you to imagine that you were a president of some foreign nation, maybe a member of a BRIC country, and you saw what happened to Russia. You saw Biden seize all of Russia's money. Well, now you realize that you and your country's uh, reserves that are invested in America, they might be seized too. They are now profoundly vulnerable to the whims of the U.S. government. So as a president of wherever, South Africa, let's say, what do you do in response to that? Well, you start looking around for a new transaction currency for your traders. That's, that's certainly true. But more importantly, you look for a new reserve currency. You need new investments that are no longer in the United States where you can park your nation's money. That's too darn risky. And you don't want to buy any more U.S. debt unless you absolutely have to because you never want to be Russia. And that, folks, is what is happening right now all around the world. Now, on April 12th, we talked about how we are seeing more transactions globally being done without U.S. dollars. Well, that is certainly true. But yesterday and all this week in South Africa, BRIC countries are starting to talk about this reserve currency issue. Some of those nations want to create one using their shared bank. Again, the goal here is to dethrone the U.S. dollar and yank away the power and influence of the U.S. government. All right, well, be that as it may, are these BRIC countries going to be able to pull it off? Well, most economists say no or heck no, but there are rumblings for it and BRIC countries would be the ones to do it. And if they were able to pull it off, well, America's credit card would no longer get 0% interest for another 80 years. Our rates would go up. We would have fewer buyers for our debt. In other words, we'd have to sweeten the interest rate to get these investors back. And that means with $32 trillion in debt, which is supposed to double over the next 20 years, well, that means that interest payments are going to go out the roof. And depending on which economist you talk to, we are going to be in serious trouble. In fact, a few cheeky ones say that we're going to have to move back in with Britain because we will be broke. So that is why we should care about this BRIC group and reserve currencies and transaction currencies. And that is probably why we should uh, care about Prince William and Kate. Treat them nicely. You uh, apparently might be sleeping on their couch before too long. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. So we will be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, I have something good to tell you about. It's called Wacker Coffee Company. Yeah, Funny name, great coffee, although I should not say funny name. Tim Wacker is the guy who owns this incredible coffee company, and he is as great as his coffee. He is a former United States Marine, although never really a former, always United States Marine. Wonderful family man, and let me tell you, he's a guy with a passion for roasting coffee. In fact, his company's motto is this, we empower coffee beans to be the best version of themselves. Yeah, now that is a guy and a Marine who is serious about his coffee. And it is seriously good. Wacker Coffee Company has six different roasts to include a decaf option for all of you crazy people, which I got to tell you, all of these roasts are worth every penny. So go to WackerCoffeeCo.com, that is WackerCoffeeCo.com, and enter promo code WRITEREPORT, and you are going to get 10% off. Ladies and gentlemen, go to Wacker, that is W-A-C-K-E-R, coffeeco.com, buy this stuff, it is so good, and buy it today. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a listener question this morning sent to us from one of my paid subscribers at rightreport.substack.com. Sue from somewhere in Iowa asked Brian, did you watch any of the GOP debate last night or the interview with Trump? And if so, what'd you think? So, Sue, I did watch most of it and most of the interview with Mr. Trump that was conducted by good old Tucker Carlson. And here are a couple of reflections I had for you. We'll start with the debate. So Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, he is the man that is in second place in most national polls. I would say he had a pretty good night, a strong performance relatively. He has governed his state very well. And last night he showed why he deserves some serious attention. Next, governor, uh, former governor, Nikki Haley. She was thoughtful, poised, interesting. She had a very good answer on dirty green energy that mostly it all comes from China. And that is true. She offered up what I might call some gender politics that wasn't especially appealing to me. But overall, a decent performance. Then there was Vivek Ramaswamy, the businessman. So I found him to be very slick, speaks well. And I'll tell you, his prospective presidency is very interesting to me. He's talked about things like disbanding the FBI, cutting 75% of federal employees. That's good. He also wants to dial back on our foreign entanglements. Also, I would support. But I'll tell you, I would just like to hear more uh, from him and about him, get a better sense of who he is and the consistency of his views. He's young. He's very new to politics. So I want to see if he is consistent. And of course, we next have the Tucker Carlson interview with former president and current GOP leader Donald Trump. And I will say that whether you love or hate Mr. Trump, (laughs) the man can make you laugh and cringe in the same sentence. And what it comes down to for me, well, I'll tell you, if Mr. Trump can hire the right staff to be around him to execute his vision, he's got a very compelling case. But in my view, he struggled with this the last time around. He really struggled to find good people. Although, to be fair, this is an issue that is important and challenging for all candidates. Because I'll tell you, here's what I know, having worked in Washington, D.C. The bureaucrats of the federal government, whether you call them the deep state or the administrative state, whatever, these bureaucrats will devour a president and their agenda unless, You hire heads of those agencies and departments that know exactly what they are doing and can move bureaucrats out of the way. In other words, to drain the swamp, you got to know how the swamp works. And that is ultimately what I am looking for in a president. Now, is that Trump, DeSantis, Ramaswamy? I don't know. I'll let you make the call on that. But as for me, that's what I saw last night. And those are the issues that I will be looking for moving forward. Folks, if you would like me to ask one of your questions on the podcast, it's really easy to do. Just go to writereport.substack.com, sign up, choose the option that is best for your budget, and then shoot me a note. Plus, you'll get to enjoy the daily ad-free podcast and the daily transcript. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief.